I think this is fine. So this is the fifth in a five-part series. Um, I was wondering how many of you have uh, listened to the other four? Oh, good. Well, some maybe 37 percent, approximately. So I'll review them. Uh, The five faculties are actually five factors that we use in just about anything that we undertake, whether it's um, any kind of skilled activity like playing a musical instrument or playing a sport, um, cooking, writing code for computers, these are five factors that, um, which taken together um, control the mind, control the mental process. And so it's helpful to develop each one of these uh, faculties. Um, tonight I'll be talking particularly how we develop them for uh, use in meditation, in mindfulness meditation. So the first faculty is faith or confidence. So when we come when we come to practice, there's some element of inspiration that we have that that this practice will lead somewhere. Now that confidence may come from having read something or having heard a talk or perhaps um, some experience you may have had, or it might have been from just being with somebody that you find has some some quality of being that you would like to cultivate for yourself. So you might have spent time with somebody who seems to have a great deal of equanimity, ability to, to be fairly um, composed under trying conditions. So, the, the five start with faith or confidence that, that this is um, that this is a practice that will be useful, that will lead somewhere, and that we're all capable of doing. And from confidence, the, the next faculty after confidence is energy or effort. So it takes more than just wishing to want to develop mindfulness. It takes um, taking time probably every day to sit, to to get yourself to the cushion, to um, put the rest of your life um, off to the side for however long you want to do it, 15 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes. And then really bring your awareness to the practice. So it takes a certain energy. If you, if you do it when you're really tired or sleepy and you just sit down and close your eyes and there's a much energy there, you probably fall asleep pretty quickly. And then after energy and effort, um, the f- uh, third faculty is mindfulness. And that's what we talk a lot about in this practice is um, paying attention 
that mindfulness is noticing what we're doing and coming up with just simple labels for you know, what's happening now. Can we stay with our moment-to-moment experience? Be aware of what it is. And as we develop mindfulness, um, that leads to the fourth faculty, which is concentration. So as we sit in meditation and pay attention to what's happening, usually our breath, that over time, the mind will settle down. Not forever, but for a few moments, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for longer. And so there'll be a way in which the mind can just settle on one object, one locus of activity. So it might be um, settling on the breath or it might be settling on some physical sensation that you're having in your body. It might be on some emotion that's passing through. It might be um, noting a particular thought stream is going on. Um, But some quality of being able to stay uh, with one experience is concentration. And then as concentration builds, it leads to the fifth faculty, which is uh, sometimes called wisdom or discernment. So that's a little bit different than mindfulness. It's not just noting what's going on, but there's an element of uh, thinking, an element of investigation that's going on. It's kind of the place where we bring all of our qualities of intelligence to the practice. So we we start to see um, how certain things may precede other things. trying to think one of the examples that I thought of is actually outside of meditation you might notice that on your way over here if, if when you're driving here on Thursday night you might listen to the radio so if you listen to hot talk radio before you get to the meditation uh, center with some radio announcer that has all sorts of um, very provocative things to say about the world particularly about the world of politics. And then you come in and you sit, you might notice that your mind's fairly restless. So discernment might be noticing that listening to hot talk radio before you sit and meditate leads to an agitated mind. And you may decide that maybe I'll listen to a different radio station before I, before I sit and meditate. And the level of discernment, I mean, that's sort of a gross level, but you'll find that as you practice, you can get to finer and finer levels of discernment. Uh, 
And then with that discernment, as you start to see what's going on in your practice and how you might be able to affect or influence the states of mind that arise, uh, your sense of well-being, that that can then lead back to the first faculty of, of faith or confidence, that as discernment builds, so your confidence in the practice would build. And with greater confidence would lead to greater energy. Greater energy would lead to stronger mindfulness, stronger mindfulness to stronger concentration, and stronger concentration to, again, stronger discernment. So these five all work together and they kind of form a feedback loop, or they can. Um, Each one of these is also an antidote for um, factors that can arise that can impede your meditation practice. So, for example, if doubt arises, then um, confidence is the antidote for doubt. So, seeing using some discernment to see what is it that strengthens your confidence in the practice and your ability to to pay attention and uh, work with that. Um, the antidote for sometimes called laziness or sloth or torpor is uh, energy or effort. So if you're sitting in meditation and you find that there's Um, kind of a draining out of of your energy, either physical or mental, that that would be a time to see if you can strengthen the energy and effort that you're applying to your practice. Um, Mindfulness is considered the antidote for heedlessness. And that's kind of an odd word. I don't rarely use it in in day-to-day life, but it's basically the opposite of mindfulness, of not paying attention. You know, kind of when you're going along and things are, you realize after a while all sorts of things have been happening that you've just completely um, let slide, didn't didn't note. bringing greater mindfulness is the antidote for that. Uh, Concentration is the antidote for distraction. So I imagine all of you have had at least some moment of meditation practice where your mind has gotten agitated and distracted and it seemed like it jumped from thought to thought, sometimes referred to as monkey mind. Um, So when you find your mind you just you're just distracted. It just doesn't seem to want to settle any in any one place. Then, using discernment to find how can I, how can you strengthen concentration? And there's some formal practices for that, which were probably covered last week. And then finally, um, wisdom and discernment are antidotes for ignorance. So or, or the other way it's sometimes said is ignorance. So um, 
it's kind of asking the question, what am I not paying attention? What what's here that I'm not paying attention to right now? And I'll talk I'll talk more about that later. So as I said, these these five faculties all um, work together, and when they become fully developed, there there's you know there's loads and loads of lists in Buddhism. There's um, you know the the two of this and the three of that, the seven of seven factors of enlightenment. So there's two lists of five that are uh, one is the five faculties and one is the five powers, and they're the exact same list. Uh, the five powers are uh, what the five faculties become when you fully developed fully developed them. So, Buddhism is considered a wisdom tradition. So, um, this this wisdom is at, at the core of of our practice. And one of the ways of looking at at Buddhist practice is that it actually is carried by two wings: the wing of Wisdom and the wing of compassion, and so I'll talk about that a little bit more later. So it's not just about developing wisdom; it, it requires doing that in conjunction with um, compassion, a heartfelt sense of um, purpose and motivation. So in early practice, quite often the instruction is to kind of shy away from thinking very much. Or there, you might get the impression that thinking is not allowed. And <clears throat> that's not really true. It's just that we're so predisposed to thinking, so um, conditioned, to look at the thinking mind, um, in some cases so enamored with the stories that we tell ourselves, that it's helpful um, to withdraw your attention from thinking um, in order to be able to develop these other faculties, to develop uh, the energy and the mindfulness and the concentration. Um, <clears throat> but discernment does come from using thinking and all the forms of intelligence that we have and all of the forms of knowing that we have, of knowing what's happening to us and using thinking wisely in our practice. Let's see. And so the purpose of practice, so it's said that the purpose of practice is really to come to see reality. And so one of the first roles that discernment can play in the practice is 
seeing to discern what are the um, what are the false impressions about our experience that we've stockpiled in our imagination? You know, the what is it that we uh, believe about ourselves, about life, um, about other people that may not stand up to close scrutiny. So discernment in, <clears throat> in meditation practice can help us see what those false impressions that are stockpiled in our imagination are. The other thing is that, that this is also not just about thinking. And there's a, a quotation that I wanted to read that I got from the Access to Insight website. And unfortunately, I didn't print out who this is from, but I think it's Ajahn Lee, who is a, a famous teacher in Thailand. Um, so I know it was from a talk in 1956, but I, I don't know who said it. <laughs> what does discernment come from? You might compare it with learning to become a potter, a tailor, or a basket weaver. The teacher will start out by telling you how to make a pot, sew a shirt, or a pair of pants, or weave different patterns. But the proportions and beauty of the object you make will have to depend on your own powers of observation. Suppose you weave a basket and then take a good look at its proportions to see if it's too tall or too, sh too short. If it's too short, weave another a little taller and then make a, take a good look at it to see if there's anything that still needs improving to see if it's too thin or too fat. Then weave another one better looking than the last. Keep this up until you have one that's as beautiful and well proportioned as possible. One with nothing to criticize from any angle. This last basket you can take as your standard. You can set yourself up in business. What you've done is to learn from your own actions. As for your previous efforts, you needn't concern yourself with them any longer. Throw them out. This is a sense of discernment that arises of its own accord, an ingenuity and sense of judgment that comes not from anything your teachers have taught you, but from observing and, ev and evaluating on your own the object that you yourself have made. So in some ways, discernment isn't anything that somebody can teach you, which kind of lets me off the hook. <clears throat> Let's see. So one of the things that can be helpful to develop discernment in meditation and, and also in outside of meditation is working with practice questions. Questions that are fairly simple and might fuel your investigation in a way that doesn't ruffle the mind. 
doesn't, you know, so you want to be investigating what's going on, but not so strongly that it adversely affects the mindfulness or the concentration. So one of the questions that I got from Gil is, what is left out? What is left out here? So as you're in meditation and you're paying attention to what's going on, you might just subtly ask that question, what's, go- what's being left out? There might be some emotion that's kind of right on the fringe that is waiting to be um, seen and experienced. Um, might be some bodily sensation. It might be some thought. It might be some belief that you have about yourself or about somebody else or about life that influences how you act in the world, how you, how you see yourself, how you see others that you're not even aware of. So, kind of at those times, and again, it, it really takes, it's sort of an art, those times when the mind seems fairly quiet and not bothered so much by the hindrances, you can just kind of ask that practice question, what, what's left out here? Another Another question like that, which which comes from um, another teacher of mine, Sylvia Borstein, came about when she was working in a, a psychology environment. She was a psychologist and worked with other psychologists, and they would pass each other in the halls, and one someone would ask her, "Well, well, how are you?" And she'd go, "Oh, I'm I'm fine," and they'd say, "No, how are you really?" Um, kind of indicating that they wanted something, you know, below the surface. You know, kind of what, you know, what's really going on with you? How, how are you doing, really? So that that can also be a practice question that you can do. You know, how am I doing, really? You know, kind of in the privacy of your own experience, your own inner world working with that question of how am I how am I right now let's see so um, wisdom and discernment can really come from three sources. And the first one is learning from others. So hopefully that's what's happening here. Um, there's um, you know reading books, listening to talks, um, seeing how others practice. And there's a value to that. So it doesn't have to all so there are things, there are ways that you can learn and be supported by the rest of the sangha from learning from others. 
The second path or the second uh, avenue of um, coming to wisdom and discernment is through uh, thinking, uh, reflecting, and contemplating. So this would be, um, you know, maybe as you're driving, driving along somewhere or sitting at home, you know, kind of thinking about your experience, asking questions. Um, That's a little bit more on the intellectual level, not so much on the uh, emotional level. And then the the third uh, avenue for um, cultivating wisdom and discernment is actually through meditation practice. And it's said that this is the most direct and profound method for cultivating discernment and wisdom. Uh, Because it's really a way that you can integrate your intellect intellectual activity with your physical experience, your emotional experience, and um, all of the all of your deepest ways of knowing what's going on. Okay. See, so So developing a discernment and wisdom uh, in meditation, uh, one way I talked about was is with using a, a practice question. And that may be useful. Um, in some ways, meditation just inherently heightens your discernment. So there's a way in which just sitting and closing your eyes and paying attention to your breath helps bring together um, different types of knowing. And so you may find that that that, um, activity of the mind that wants to investigate will just naturally arise. Where I've seen that in my own experience is with my nine-year-old nephew. Um, He has these toys that are kind of like high-tech tinker toys. They're a lot of different lengths and different connecting type parts. And when he's just left alone, he'll sit sit in a room and look at this book and see a, a picture of some kind of a structure that he can build. And he'll just try different things and look at the book and develop that you know, kind of dis- discriminating quality of being able to figure out whether he needs to use a red part or a green part, whether he needs to use a, a ten-sided connector or a four-sided one. So the activity of, of discerning or discriminating is a natural functioning. So we don't, in some ways, we don't really have to force it to happen. It'll, it'll just happen on its own, provided that um, we provide the right conditions.
the other thing about discernment is that it, it, it helps us get absorbed into what's happening. So there's a way in which if you're sitting in meditation and just trying to note what's happening moment to, to moment, you may find that your attention may start to wander um, or you might kind of get bored with the object. Like, okay, well, I've, I've been paying attention to the breath for five whole minutes now. You know, when is something more interesting going to come along? So bringing this quality of discernment to, your, to the meditation, you may find that as you start to really pay attention to can I follow this breath to the very end? You know, what does the very end of the in-breath feel like? And when does the out-breath start? And can I follow it all the way to the end? There's some way in which by bringing that um, discernment and that investigation to your meditation practice that it'll be easier to absorb into what's going on. So discernment can help in meditation practice. Um, I I found there were sort of, in in looking at my own experience, that there were three things that, uh, categories of things that one might use, uh, find um, discernment useful for. The first one is, with this question of looking at what is present? What is present in my experience right now? Or the other way of saying that is what's going on? About a, I think it was about two years ago. No, actually probably three years ago. I was sitting in the New Year's retreat at Spirit Rock. And in my meditation sit just before my interview, I noticed that there just was some industry Uh, some emotion going on with me that I couldn't quite find a label for. But there was a sense of longing in it. And I wasn't quite sure what I was longing for. And so I just stayed with that that emotion. I stayed with that feeling. Um, You know, kind of, what is this? What is this? Not, not Not in a demanding way, just in a curious way. To know what is, what is this that just keeps keeps showing up at the edge of my awareness, and just before the meditation ended, what came to me was I wanted to be seen. For some reason, I, I couldn't explain it. I, I just wanted to be seen. It wasn't, I couldn't say exactly by who or what that would be like. 
And fortunately, several minutes later, I was going into the interview room to be seen by one of the teachers. And I mentioned it. I told her this. I thought I would report it. You know, I thought, I don't know what to do with this. And she just said a few very reassuring words to me about how this is something that we all want. And many of us never got as much as we'd like. And so she just sat there for about five minutes and she just held me in her gaze. And it was so refreshing. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just exactly what I wanted. It, it, It felt like some tension, some longing just um, was fulfilled in a way that required no no words, no um, justification. And then the interview ended and I got up and I walked out of the room. <laughs> so um, that's one of the, the types of things that, that discernment um, can do in practice is help us see these these things that are that are in us that um, we may not have recognized. The second thing are in the category of what can we let go of? You know what what. Um, What is it that that we're holding on to that's just not serving us? And my example on that was, again, on my my first long retreat, um, the teachers had described to us this phenomenon that can happen known as a Vipassana romance, where you're sitting in silence, mostly with people that you've never met or talked to before, and over time there may be some other person that you just decide is like the most wonderful person in the world and you know you're sure that you know having looked at him or her that that as soon as the 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 retreats over they're they're going to be the one you know you're just going to have this this wonderful relationship which undoubtedly ends with finding out that they're they're absolutely nothing like what you had developed in your mind and so I kind of laughed when they gave this description of the Vipassana romance. And of course, it turned out there was this young woman sitting next to me during these 10 days. And I found that whenever the meditation got difficult, whenever my body became painful or um, I just didn't like what was going on, I found I could kind of go off into this fantasy about who this woman was and um, she would often struggle with trying to connect with her breath so she'd breathe loudly. So there was a way in which if I didn't want to follow my breath, I could follow her breath. (laughs) Her breath seemed much more interesting than mine for some reason. Um, And I talked to to my teacher about, you know, I said, well, you know, 
I know that you advise us not to have these Vipassana romances, but I think in my case there's something really special here. There's something, you know, that this is this is you know this is very different. And so he kept trying to talk me out of it, and eventually he said, "Jim, just go for it. You know, just you know, indulge, see what happens." And what I found that happened was it just didn't go anywhere. It wasn't. It was the same set of ideas over and over and over again. And there really wasn't, and that I was missing what was actually going on with me. And when I finally saw that, when I finally realized that, you know, I could have this fantasy like a hundred times or five hundred times or a thousand times, that it just didn't change. You know, that it, that there wasn't, that it wasn't a path to something else. And when I saw that, I was able to let go of it. So I realized this is not, you know, this is not helpful. But it took more than just the teacher telling me that it's not helpful. It was really something that I had to see for myself. So we can see what's present, we can see what we can let go of. The third thing is um, kind of seeing how we can apply ourselves in meditation. And what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we're said that we come and sit in meditation and it's best not to have any goal, not to have any objective, not try to have any, get anything to happen. And yet we all have some motivation for having come to practice. Um, when I teach an introductory course, I, I like to ask people, well, why are you here? And I quite often hear that people talk about wanting to reduce stress in their life, um, wanting to be calmer, um, perhaps reducing the amount of agitation in their mind, you know, kind of the attention deficit disorder that our culture seems to almost induce. Um, you know, for some people, it may be because of uh, physical problems in their body, or it might be just wanting a greater clarity of mind. Um, some idea about um, spiritual development, that might be the motivation. So, and, and the motivation may change over time. But as we, we look at, or the, the goal may be, can I live with no goal? It's still a goal. So using discernment to see how can we, how can we best use the practice to work with the objective that we have in our particular um, at the particular time that we're meditating.
So, I mean, so I have here warning. Goals can be hazardous to your happiness. So, um, so if we if we think that we're going to sit and in the next 45 minutes we're going to develop a, a pure and serene mind, that could be a setup because at the end that might not be what happened. Nonetheless, if we see that that's our intention, that's our desire, then the discernment can help us see what factors or what, which of these five faculties we might need to um, strengthen or loosen to, to achieve that. So for example, if we decide we'd, we'd really like to be settled, we'd really like to have a strong, concentrated mind, and we come in and we go, okay, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I'm just ready to go. I've drank three cups of coffee and I've, you know, run five miles and I'm just energized and I'm ready, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready to become concentrated. And you might find that it doesn't happen. And the discernment factor might be able to see that, well, what I really need to do is back off a little bit on the energy and the effort. That's, that's a little too strong and that it's that in order for concentration to develop um, the, the energy and the, the striving needs to be reduced and some uh, maybe more repetitive thing like counting the breath needs to be done to, to, to uh, increase concentration. And then finally, one of the things that we can do with discernment is look at, at understanding uh, everything that we're doing to construct a sense of who we are, a sense of self. You know, a sense of this pain is my pain. This pleasure is my pleasure. Uh, these are my emotions. These are my thoughts. This experience is happening to me. I'm the one meditating here. So with discernment, we can start to see, can we see the difference between all of those activities that we call I, and that which is aware of them. Can we see that there's an awareness that's in some ways distinct from all of these experiences that we're labeling as me and I, me and mine? And if we can, can we rest in that awareness that is separate from the experience. So I leave that as uh, homework. So finally, um, again, 
these five faculties operate together. Um, they have to. It helps if they're they're in balance, so that the the confidence in the practice and the discernment are somewhat balanced, and that the energy and the concentration are balanced, so that they can operate most effectively. And in particular, that <clears throat> that the faith that that we don't rely only on wisdom, only on discernment, which if that's too strong, can become kind of heady and intellectual. But really keep it connected with, um, with faith, with um, kind of a heartfelt um, motivation for doing the practice so that both the heart and the mind are equally engaged. So I'd like to open it up for questions or comments. Um, any experience that you'd like to share? Rebuttals? <laughs> yes. go of wanting to go to the ashram? imagine um, what came up when I was listening to you was um, really a curiosity about what's the intention behind wanting to go to the ashram? What, what, what is it that's... Instead of 
always trying to be where I'm not going to be yet. Mm. And just hearing let it go <coughs> helps me with this. Because I have a lot of steps to take to deal with before I can get there. Mm. And if that's the divine love in your life. Well, mindfulness is just kind of knowing what's happening. You know, like, okay, agitated mind, agitated mind, agitated mind. Discernment would be more like, so there's an agitated mind here. Where's that agitation coming from? You know, kind of investigates. You know, I wonder if there's some emotion that's going on that I'm not aware of. So it might it might start saying, you know, it might start kind of asking the questions or investigating. Whereas mindfulness is just, you know, I mean, you could sit there for 45 minutes, just you know, agitated mind, agitated mind, <laughs> agitated mind, <laughs> you know, and that would be mindfulness, but it may not it may not be serving you as well as if you brought some careful, skillful investigation of what is it that's, what is it that's agitating the mind, you know, and realizing that there's maybe there's some emotion that's waiting to present itself. Um, so does, does that help? That helps a lot. They investigate Yes. Um, I'm fairly new to the practice, but uh, it seems to me that it's just natural for the mind to just wander off. And, and so sitting in meditation feels like it's doing something natural. Mm. Well, it's said that the mind is very malleable, and the mind does what it's trained to do. So, how have we trained our minds? I mean, kind of what seems natural may be what we've trained the mind to do. So, you know, like I know I've, from about the age of two, I've sat in front of a television. So, you know, I'm used to commercials coming on. <laughs> you know, uh, used to be every 15 minutes. Now it's uh, like every five minutes or something. But, you know, that, 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 um, that when we stop doing some of these, you know, doing some of the 
activities that have um, conditioned our minds that the mind's going to keep doing what it's been conditioned to do. And um, one way to think of meditation is it's sort of um, mental deprogramming. You know, that you're really, instead of programming it to, to jump to whatever's the most exciting, the most um, vibrant, the most um, kinetic, it's can we just stay in one spot? So it, in some ways it is, I mean, I guess in that sense it's unnatural because it's not, it's not, it's going against our training or, you know, what, what we've trained our mind to do to this point. Does that help? Um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and it's difficult. I mean, it seems like the instruction, sit and close your eyes and pay attention to your breath. You know, it's, you, know you can say it and you can give the instructions in, in a minute, but the much longer instructions are, so how do you work with when you start to fall asleep, when you start to fantasize, you know, when your body starts to have sensations you don't like or your body starts to have sensations you do like? Um, how do you how do you stay? How do you continue to pay attention? That's um, it. It takes time. One of the descriptions is it's a little bit like paper training a puppy. Um, you know, you you set the puppy on the paper and it wanders off, and you, you pick it up and you set it back on the paper and it wanders off. And you go and you pick it up again and you bring it back. And eventually it figures out that it's supposed to stand on, be on the paper when it, when it's gonna, um, do its thing. But it takes, you know, bring, continually, continually bringing it back. And so that's what this practice is, is continually coming back. Yes. Oh, no, it's just in a silent meditation environment in a re- during a retreat. The mind always wants to entertain itself. It just loves to be entertained. At least my mind does. It loves to be entertained. And when you're sitting in a room full of people with their eyes all closed, one of the ways that it can entertain itself is to start making up stories about other people. Now, Vipassana romances have... There's a a counterpart to the Vipassana romance, which is the Vipassana revenge. So, you, you know, somebody... When they walk, their feet make noise. You know, God, how can, you know, how can this guy walk around making these noise with his feet? You know, and so, you know, the story can also be an aversive one. So one is desire and one is aversion, but they're just stories that the mind is making up. So the Vipassana romance thing is being aware that 
this whole story that you're making up really is mostly your mind just trying to entertain itself. It doesn't mean that after the retreat, you know, it might turn out that you're made for each other and a wonderful relationship could develop. But in the context of the, the retreat, when you're not talking to each other and not even making eye contact, the warning is whatever you think is going on there is a fabrication of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it might it might just be men. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very ec- excellent question. And I don't think there's a simple answer to it. The discernment, I mean, part of discerning is discerning when it's best not to discern. <laughs> so if you find yourself, you know, like really getting caught up in investigative questions to the point where your mindfulness has dropped away, you know, like you're, you're not paying attention to what's... to to what's going on and your concentration isn't very strong that that the investigation is jumping from thing to thing like you know well what's going on here well no what's going on here you know i mean kind of so so the discernment has to you know has to be aware of the concentration the mindfulness um, you know the energy the confidence and and it it's what um, can find when things are out of tune, including itself. Well, it's just nine o'clock, so thank you all for your attention.